0: I'm Dr Mark Donoghue and this is FX Radio. I'm standing in today for the venerable Andrew Whitfield Cook and on the line from America one week out from the uh, 2015 Biocetical Symposium is Dr David Hussey, founder of the Maxwell Clinic. I love that name, the Maxwell Clinic. Welcome to Australia via telephone and we'll be seeing you next week. Welcome David.
1: Oh, it's a... Like- great to be here and (laughs) will be great to be there.
0: I should introduce you, not only founder of the Maxwell Clinic, but a a very big player and reviewer of the textbook of functional medicine. And it seems like your interest in functional medicine goes back quite a way. Can you give us a bit of your history?
1: Uh, Certainly. Um, Well, I didn't know this, but my interest in functional medicine really dates back to my time working on the family farm in South Dakota. Uh, That was where I first uh, were, was given my lessons that nature has its rules, and you can either play by nature's rules or you can try to play against nature's rules. And then um, I spent a long time forgetting that as I wow. dove into uh, conventional medicine. I uh, attended Vanderbilt Medical School in Nashville and then went to the Mayo Clinic uh, where I completed residency and practice for a time. And I think it was a wonderful place, uh, great for subspecialty care and looking at complex chronic disease. Uh, but after a period of time, you start to recognize that um, the, the goal, what I went into medicine for, was to help people create health, not necessarily to treat disease. And that was a, a shift for me uh, to recognize that Naming it and blaming it and taming it really wasn't why I went to medical school. And as I've continued to have this conversation with more physicians, I realized that's not why they went to medical school either. They're not necessarily as happy as they would be. Um, They're certainly as happy as I am getting to do what I get to do. So um, how the entire transition process happened uh, was really kind of an accident. I sat back and looked at the results I was achieving in practice, and I realized that this isn't what I wanted for my own results. So I began to look deeper and had a transformational experience in functional medicine. Um, it happened by going to a, a, a junket. I uh, went to a, a continuing medical education event at a ski resort. Uh, it was called Food as Medicine. You know, I was really just looking for a vacation. And then this gentleman named Jeff Bland stood up and gave a speech about systems biology medicine. And in a flash, um, I was converted. I recognized that um, I could look at all of Western medicine. I could look at the science, the hard science of Western medicine through the eyes of systems biology and honor the whole of the patient that was in front of me i could honor the whole of the process by which health was created and there started an adventure rethinking how i viewed data and how it applied towards this creation of health so um, i don't have some a story of my own of my health was dramatically shifted or changed right. it was basically just a real desire to find a better way, to find a a way that worked uh, with nature to create health rather than against nature to treat disease.
0: And the fascinating development is a lot of my orthodox colleagues regard functional medicine as a throwback to the past. Truthfully, you know, orthodox medicine is the throwback to the past where simple diseases with simple single causes presented and they were a job to be done and we did a great job for a century of finding the drugs and the methods of taming those diseases. Now we find medicine kind of sitting there with a twiddling thumbs saying, what do we do next? And when orthodox medicine fiddles with healthy people, it's almost always a disaster. We're disease specialists And the growth of functional medicine is a growth of, okay, we can cope with complexity now. Before, we had to have reductionist simplicity. We'd do statistics. We'd say every person is not an individual. They're all part of a group. And for simplicity, we kind of made it simple, won a lot of those battles. And now the battle is, what do you do with the complex? And I think functional medicine rises at exactly the right time to take those systems approaches and say, we can handle complexity. It's a new education. We have to open our minds to something that we're not very good at. We have to, you know, look at processes and ultimate causes and the personal and individual approaches. But we're capable of that now. And while it's a throwback, It's a little bit like the environment that you've come from yourself. Farming is a throwback, but it teaches us deep lessons about biology. And that's what I love about functional medicine. The biology is king.
1: And and I think what you've said is so keen because really science is all about describing reality. That's the job of science. And once we have uh, – and so functional medicine is that systems biology model to better describe reality. I think that's what I was speaking of. Growing up on a farm, the farm is very real. You know, you, I hear the axioms of my father in my ear all the time. You know, fix it right the first time, or you'll end up trying to fix it again. Um, you know, you know, do what's wise and works. Um, all of those things that uh, are simple aphorisms um, are principles of, of principles of how nature works. And that's where I see the beauty in functional medicine. There's all this incredible science. You know, we get to do whole, in our clinic, we do whole genome analysis, whole metabolome analysis. We do quantitative EEG brain mapping. We get to get a lot of really fun and amazing data to quantify this individual that's in front of us. But when it comes to interventions, we often have to, we get to go back to first principles. Things that are wise. And um, so complex data often gets uh, applied in very simple and fundamental ways. So while it can be um, a, a lifetime of entertainment for a nerd to dive into <laughs> all of the minutiae, um, it also is a wonderful experience of a clinician to get to see people actually get better. Uh, as a result of doing things that may just be a fundamental um, alignment with reality as opposed to uh, so much fun.
0: Yeah, it, it it is, and you get to play with great toys like the QEEG. Um, the, the ability to handle that data is, of course, a function of a, a computerized world, but the beauty of the computers, the soft touch of it is, then you can take that information and bring it back to something relevant to that individual person. You don't have to just say you have breast cancer and your drug therapy will be the breast cancer therapy. It's now therapy for your particular type of cancer as it changes over time, that the learning that the body, each individual, is not static, that we're dynamic and our cancers and our illnesses and our diseases change with time. That's overwhelming for the doctor who just likes a nice, simple diagnosis but when you're a nerd with these toys, you can follow it over time and adjust and give the feedback, then that's a, such a powerful tool for people's recovery.
1: It is a powerful tool. And it takes a different clinical framework often. It does take spending more time with an individual and understanding their context. I like to say that functional medicine is the medicine of context. Mm. Uh, it, it's trying to understand, recognizing this. Unique person, this 100% unique person in their genetics, their environment, their exposures that's coming to you at this unique point in time in their life with unique sets of relationships, It's the context that matters the most. And that takes some time to recognize the context of another human being, to honor who they are, to listen. And so, you know, the application, you can get all excited about the science, and I certainly am, but without Spend, without changing a clinical parameter and listening and taking an excellent history, um, oftentimes the, uh, you don't get the results that you would hope for.
0: Yeah, I, I was reminded of this. We had Richie Shoemaker over here just a while ago who's, uh, who's very much into the area of complex chronic illnesses and neuroinflammation. And he gave a demonstration of the history taking. And it was it was like, oh, come to my heart, my friend. You know, the, asking the questions that to an average doctor seem irrelevant when you snap, you know, five minutes, six minutes, ten minutes. You've got to get to the right answer straight away. And functional medicine opens up the questions so that people get to not just express the symptoms but express the context for it. And most of the time, they've already answered the question about how they're going to get better without ever realizing it. Our job seems to be just stitching those bits together after a good uh, interview and physical examination, taking the person seriously and then preventing the disease that otherwise doctors would get to see 10 years down the line. It's fun. And
1: it is fun. A good example of that is something I learned from Dr. Shoemaker about eight years ago. And um, and it's actually become part of my history taking, and that was asking uh, in the right individual. You don't ask every person this, but do you easily get electrical shocks? Yes. Or, or give or receive electrical shocks? You know. And and I thought, well, the first time I heard it say that. I felt like, okay, this guy is off his rocker. There's no interest. I'm going to ask the person if they get or receive electrical shocks more than other people do. Right. And then I started doing a lot of the testing. We uh, unfortunately had a terrible flood in middle Tennessee, um, Mm -hmm. destroying many homes in Nashville and Clarksville. And so I, um, by matter of necessity, had to become somewhat of a mold expert. Spent quite a bit of time learning from Dr. Shoemaker. And in that and all the testing, realizing that, wow, osmolality and antidiuretic hormone abnormalities are rife. With uh, in these populations, it changes the, you know, the electrolyte makeup, uh, and therefore changes that person's uh, electrical valence in in context of their surroundings. Um, blew my mind. I was like, oh, God. you know, just what medicine loves to make one arrogant. You know, <laughs> being being the expert uh, often puts one into a. a The framework of not being open to learning uh, what's really uh, remarkable. And the amazing thing that to mention that to a patient and and ask them that question well, do you receive or give shocks more easily? And they do, their mouths just drop open. Like, why on earth would you ask them that question? And then the healing happens because now they are already seeing themselves as not a crackpot. Yes, they are. They are starting to say that. Wow, maybe maybe there's a hope, and B, maybe I'm not crazy after all, mm-hmm. and um, and that in itself is an act of healing that occurs to be understood, and, it, and that's part of the fun of this medicine too.
0: It sure uh, is
1: helping people make make that transition.
0: In fact, I was going to ask you that this. Despite all of our, you know, we are reformed, we don't think in that Cartesian way, the mind-body, the you know, it's either physical, in which case any doctor should be able to make the diagnosis, or you go over to the psychiatrist, there's the kind of the dark side of the mind doesn't have a bodily representation. It still sits in the consciousness now. A doctor who's busy, who can't figure out which category a person fits in, passes them to a psychiatrist who typically now reframes it in terms of you have a chemical imbalance in your brain. You were born without adequate serotonin or monoamine or whatever the the particular predisposition is, and we have a pill to correct that. So this mindset of you either are physically ill or you are... Mentally ill, but in a way that is mysterious and unrelated to everything in life, not related to diet, lifestyle, environment, or anything else. And that isolation of the psychiatrist to then administer powerful drugs that change the trajectory of the person is, I find, one of the most reprehensible <laughs> ideas in medicine at the moment. That we don't do anything for health, we just give another pill, which is going to change your brain around in a way that we find more acceptable.
1: Yes. And, and you know, um Dean Lehman, with a great quote in that psychiatry is the only specialty that does not examine the organ they treat, hmm. and you know what a and the first time I heard that, I thought, yes, you're absolutely right, that's true. and um, we do uh, quite a bit of quantitative eEG, uh, which we call brain mapping, by um, putting a a cap on patients' heads and measuring. Uh, multiple channels of these are about 19 channels of brain waves and comparing those against an FDA registered standardized database of average normal brains and getting to see, you know, where is the uniqueness for that individual? Where do they deviate from neurotypical? And, um, and then we also do measurements of quantitative, uh, uh full scalp, um, evoked potentials, which is measuring how fast do brain waves race through the brain when. Under a particular task of vision attention or or processing and and then sit knee to knee with an individual and go over the structure, function, location, interrelationships with the challenges that they may have um, again goes to this they both feel a sense that I am not to blame for the challenges that are going on mm-hmm. and I have a heightened sense of responsibility to do something about this.
0: Yeah.
1: And and I think, I think that's really wholesome. That's where we're going to change our healthcare systems, that individuals, A, uh, can let go of shame and guilt by better understanding themselves as whole creatures that have uniquenesses that may fit or may not fit with their present surroundings. Um, and then also... Imbued them with a sense of responsibility and potency that they can change their world. Yes. Um, so, brain mapping uh, in this way of of getting out of the phenomenological diagnostic strategies of psychology or of psychiatry mm. is quite amazing. Sorry, I like that. I'm, you know my. Uh, that's what happens. You go to too much school. You start throwing words around with too many syllables. But phenomenological is that, you know, we're, it's that, so you walk in the door and say, Doctor, I'm sad. Oh, that means depressed. Hmm. So therefore, you have depression. We are going to name the disease off of the symptom yes. itself. That's a phenomenological diagnosis, which really, when one looks at the quantitative EEG, there are many, many different ways of brain. Can come to the point of expressing that um, unique depression or that that unique symptom, and some of them are electrical, and some of them are biochemical, and some of them are um, beyond any of those realms, right? Even in they the essence are. of being, right? So
0: they are, and I, I mean this. I, I I think when you look back historically on the DSM, the the concept of a diagnostic and statistical manual. It, it does remind me more of a religious text than it does remind me of science. <laughs> it, you, you shall fit in this category because the person with the most credentials says that's the category you belong in. And there is no way of escaping that, that uh, diagnosis because it is by definition what the person believes the definition to be. And in fact, I love it that there's, uh, there's even a, a diagnostic category in DSM Uh, I've forgotten the name of it, but basically, I believe you're depressed. You need a SSRI. The person says, I don't believe you're right. That's a condition, an oppositional condition, that you fail to accept authority, and the treatment for that is an SSRI. (laughs) So there's no way out of it. It is self-referencing that if you disagree with the diagnosis, you have a new psychiatric disease, which, by the way, just happens to need exactly the same medication as the one I told you about before. I, I, oh, that's true. Yeah, I, I have a, a short history of this. I was in a in a Sydney university over here, and I was out at a a hospital called uh, Lincoln Hospital. It had one bright light, and that was neurology. The best neurologists from Sydney were there, and I had the joy of being with them. But in 1981, there was discussions going on about why people appeared to be getting better when their food was improved at the hospital. And, the, and the, uh, the, uh, psychi- the, sorry, the neurologists were saying, well, it's got nothing whatsoever to do with food. It's our brilliant treatment. It's, uh, you don't seriously think that the brain can regenerate cells after infancy and childhood, do you? And I remember Helen Creasy, a neurologist, the only female in the group there, young registrar, saying, I think there's building evidence that the brain may be able to regenerate. There may be plasticity in the brain And she effectively was eliminated from the group because of the false belief that the brain could possibly have any regenerative capacity after uh, infancy and after, uh, uh, after puberty. And now it seems as though that's absolutely everywhere, that neuroplasticity is a given. And the question is, how would we direct that? How would we do something about it? Do you have any kind of take on this whole process of neuroplasticity and how it is involved with health and the body and the environment?
1: Yes. So um, Donald Hebb, a renowned psychologist uh, from Canada in the 1950s, um, coined a phrase that neurons that fire together wire together. Yeah. And, and, and that is really the essence of learning in mm. all of its forms. Whatever we do today, whatever... Whatever, however we exercise our brain, that is going to prepare our brain to be better at doing that same thing tomorrow. So whether that happens to be doing math or playing the piano or or even lying, uh, the brain is going to create itself day after day to prepare to be a better brain tomorrow. And that is functional neuroplasticity. The fact that we learn throughout the course of our lifetime, is it not... It doesn't it seem self-evident now that we must have neuroplasticity. Mm. If we did not have neuroplasticity, how could one explain incremental learning? And that's, I think, when the retrospectoscope is such a powerful interest instrument, isn't it? It is. So, um, <laughs> so, um, so in the, if we recognize that the brain's main job is to learn, the brain's main it's a design, is to remember, learn, and process, then dysfunctions of the brain, whether that be dysfunctions in terms of mood, attention, um, spatial orientation, uh, processing of information, uh, all of the functions of the brain, therefore, are dependent upon our ability to learn, therefore, are associated with neuroplasticity. So if we can enable that brain to have a more focused neuroplastic response. If we can shape the brain's electrical, biological, structural function to be one that has higher states of resilience, basically higher levels of self-organization, and um, then we're essentially improving function by improving learning. And that's a, a... there's a technique called neurofeedback that we actually can train the brain to express different um, levels and different, uh, different levels of brain waves in different locations, um, and thereby make that brain more highly self-regulatory. Mm-hmm. And, um, and all that kind of sounds like a lot of mumbo-jumbo um, at the first glance, but the more one looks into it... Um, the the data is overwhelmingly clear that we can train our brains to be different tomorrow than they are today. And, um, the process of neurofeedback has been dramatic in turning around the lives of individuals with head injuries, depression, anxiety, attention deficit disorder. Um, and it all goes back to learning. It all Mm. goes back to neuroplasticity and, um, so a great joy to I, see those things
0: happen yeah I, I wanted to kind of address that because there there is still this feeling around that trauma you know in the early years of life will percolate through and will never let go that you know that the, the pathways, the amygdala pathways and the alertness and the hypervigilant pathways are kind of hardwired in after those first few years of life and I have this suspicion that our unwillingness to believe it can change almost perpetuates the inability to focus on how to how that change can occur do you do Do you address that in the clinic that say we 're chronic depression or anxiety depression that kind of you know flashing from one to the other hyper response under response and It seems difficult to break through, but there are plenty of people that i 've seen with different techniques that get themselves out of it and rewire in some way or suppress that hypervigilance. And I'm, I'm really fascinated about how that can happen.
1: Mm -hmm. And the evidence abounds. There are many different ways that this can be accomplished. That just because we have had an early childhood experience that increases the methylation of our corticosteroid um, um, receptor genes in the hippocampus, leading to a higher level of corticotropin-releasing hormone and, therefore, a higher level of stress response chronically, which actually, you know, which changes our stress response through the entire lifetime, from a prenatal event or an early childhood event, even though those individuals will almost always show a hypervigilant response on quantitative EEG. Hmm. Yet, those same individuals will have that hyper um, hypervigilant response improved with neurofeedback or biofeedback, such as heart rate variability, paced breathing, uh, respiratory sinus arrhythmia training, Um, galvanic skin response or temperature training, Um, there's many different ways that one can intervene. And certainly through psychological tools, um, certainly through counseling, through experiential um, approaches, we see people have conversions, right? right? And we we see individuals change their mind. And this idea of changing your mind, that is a physical event, (laughs) It's really remarkable, right? You know, we say the word, I've changed my mind. that That's cool. You've changed your mind. And and so we don't know the limits of how we may change our mind. We don't know how much we can change our mind, but we know our minds can change. And it's only, again, through that retrospectoscope that we can say for certainty, oh, that was possible. Right. But um, I think I totally agree with you. We underestimate our plasticity, we underestimate our ability to heal so dramatically that we have um, and, and that 's a shame that's that 's a tragedy in and of itself
0: it is um, but it 's remember it 's also a business model that uh, in psychiatry you can be on lifelong drugs for something which is a very very profitable thing for pharmacologists uh, for the pharmaceutical industry and for the doctor and for repeated um, Consultations. It's a business model that works in a multi-trillion dollar industry around the world where if you actually have simple biofeedback techniques that people can use to escape from those kind of conditions, it makes a bit of a mockery of the whole DSM and the, the uh, story that brain chemistry has just broken and we need to fix it. So that giving the ability back to the person to modify their own mind, to change their mind... I'm hoping that that's what you're going to be talking about when you get over here for the symposium, what doctors can do, what practitioners can do to help people down that path, diagnostically and therapeutically.
1: Absolutely. And the, um, it, 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 there is a lot of threat here. Um, there's a threat because our brains, whatever our brain set point is, that is our bias. Mm. And so whatever belief we have is, I like to call it, you know, soft wired in us. And it's hardwired, and it's not yet software. It's really softwired. So if we made a commitment that yes, depression is a Prozac deficiency, right? If we really think about that, does that mean arthritis is an ibuprofen deficiency? You know, does that mean uh, we're it's, it's ludicrous when, when one thinks about it that that is actually the definition of that process? But it's it's a threatening model to change one's mind when you're an expert. And that in itself is neuroplasticity. So you, it actually requires a healthy biological brain to exercise the highest levels of neuroplasticity. So it's not just about electricity. It's also about biochemistry. It's, it's because if one doesn't have good biologic function, such as your mitochondria, neurotransmitters, lipid membrane transport, um, you know, and and the signaling pathways, if one doesn't have a biochemistry there to support the electrophysiology, then you're not going to be able to learn. You're not going to be able Mm. to change your mind as well. So individuals who are sick, unfortunately have sick brains biochemically and they have a harder time seeing other realities. And we all know this from our own lives. We've we've been with people who are really ill and their lives start to close up they start to see the world shrinking around them and as providers practitioners this happens to us as well the more the more unwell we are the less flexibility we see in the system the less ability we have to have a neuroplastic event whether that is in our content of our thoughts or in the bias of our electrical signaling so yeah. Um, It always goes together. It's the brain, it's the body, it's the being. Mm -hmm. There's brain, body, being. That's how I organize the way I look uh, at a patient.
0: Yeah, that, That idea, you can't see it until you believe it, and you can't believe it till you see it, and medicine's very much on the line of we have to wait until it is in a journal before it is in the evidence base, and we do not accept anything in the evidence base. A naturopath friend of mine, William Vader, many years ago coined the term psychosclerosis, hardening of the attitudes. And uh, <laughs> he applied that to me as a doctor. He, he he challenged me in that way to say, that's just your psychosclerosis. You know, if you could open up those little attitudes of yours and get to see what's happening around you, this would provide a new, a new version of reality. And... Uh, It took years. It took years of people badgering me and listening to people before I saw that what people were doing was helping and curing themselves. I was a bystander offering drugs or non-drug therapies, and I was still amazed that once a person believed something could be true, I only needed to say, yes, you can change your brain or your mind, and people got to work doing it whereas the neurologists that said, no, no, too old, nothing, you're going to depend on drugs for the rest of your life, they took that story. They said, I must be on this drug for the rest of my life. And my early years in Lincoln Hospital, I was under a registrar whose one goal in life was to minimise drug use. He took people off the drugs and normal healthy people emerged from under them. So I was impressed by that. I wanted also just to talk about a couple of particular areas. The Will you be dealing with in the symposium with the? There are three areas that fascinate me and that doctors, as doctors and uh, integrated practitioners, we try and manipulate. One is the environment. We've talked a bit about mold, but people with uh, pains, pesticides, with exhaust fumes, with chemicals that do actually, you know, get across that blood brain barrier and do make a change to neurological function. The second one is the gut. The, that interaction between the gut and the brain, especially the kind of autonomic responses that seem to get so messy when the uh, when the gut and the microbiome are unhappy. And the final one is uh, immunology. So I mean, there are three big areas, environment, the external environment, the internal environment, and then our surveillance system, that, that fascinating link between immunology and the brain and how much of the chemistry, those two systems, they're not really, they don't even look to be different systems anymore. They seem to be the one system, one outside the brain, and one inside the brain. So, are these things you'll be dealing with at the uh, symposium?
1: Uh, absolutely, and much of that will take place in our our first uh, the first lecture and some of the the workshops that follow. There, um, you're right on target that the neuro uh, endocrine immune uh, axis is in- incredibly tightly linked. Uh, if we think about it, our uh immune system's main job is the same as the job of our brain is to learn so that we may survive yes and, um, the, and and when we just like when our brain learns dysfunctional things, uh, we may inhibit our survival when our immune system learns dysfunctional things, it may also inhibit our survival, so they really are uh, different sides of the same coin and then and likewise, with the neuroendocrine system. Uh, that the brain's job of communication uh mm-hmm. with neurotransmitters is very much analogous to that the, uh, job of communication via hormones, and so but there, it we are a whole creature, yes. and so we will we'll be describing uh some of these relationships and to understand you know, where's the right place to start
0: yeah, where do you start when you have a complex issue like this
1: exactly. And and so to step back and say, hmm, what are my spidey senses telling me about where we start with this individual? And you have ten individuals walking into your door uh, with uh, walking in with depression. um, I I drive my staff a little bit crazy because we don't have a single protocol in our office. However, we have many fundamental principles um, so that individuals can be um, honored and acknowledged um, it as by looking at their fundamental underlying function. Um, so it's going to be a lot of fun to dive into the biochemistry. I'm also looking forward to the other presenters. Um, like Joe Pizorno is going to be going through in-depth analysis of toxicity. Yes. And um, the relationships of toxicity in the brain uh, is something you shared with me that you've had some experience with in the past.
0: Yeah. yeah uh, what that, was that again? Well, uh, i I was involved in with as you as I told you, I met Bill Ray back in one thousand nine hundred and eighty uh, four and it changed the direction you know I was seeing farmers affected non complaining farmers affected in ways that were just mysterious they didn 't fit any diagnostic category. And Bill came to Australia and in a three day series at the environmental medicine conference. I I got to see how the chemistry of the world outside influences the behaviour and function of the person in really, really critical ways. And we we eventually went to Bill's clinic, put together an environmental centre in Australia and started testing these. And we were doing evoked response testing. We didn't have QEGs or anything very sophisticated, but we were watching the brain not function and we had that ability to do our version of biofeedback that Richard would do the evoked response testing we 'd do stuff we 'd detoxify we would give medications and we 'd watch the brain chemistry cha- watch the brain chemistry change through the electrical function and we We did publish this you know we published that the chronic fatigue syndrome patients had on average around about six to ten times the levels of dieldrin and uh, DDT and uh, I forget what the third one was but there there was an association. We could never prove causation. These people had much, much higher levels of these persistent organic pollutants in their fat and in their blood than the uh, normal population. And when they were detoxified, it was a rough experience for them. We got the chemicals out. It really knocked them around during that process. But at long-term follow-up, there was a significant improvement. And I I think that what I learned then was the trajectory of life can be changed. You've just got to understand that basic biochemistry, basic biology, they need to be respected. We don't need to go into it with our axioms of the brain can't change, therefore we will do X. We need to go into it thinking there's a cause for everything. It's our inability to understand those causes that's the problem and all of these tools from biofeedback to measurement of organochlorines, they're all just ways of ultimately aiming to help that patient. So I'm, I'm, I'm very much interested in Joe's work over all of those years and of seeing the effect on just not just the brain, but the immune system and the endocrine system. And the brain as that regulator is probably the most important organ, I would guess.
1: Well, it really is the center of our consciousness, our Mm -hmm. experience of life. I mean, you you can pick any organ you want, and Dr. Houston is going to be rather preferential to the heart.
0: I know. (laughs) The only
1: reason we have a heart is to support the brain. And, you know, that's going to be a hard thing for him to admit, but... (laughs) But uh, I think under duress, we'll get him to admit it. And um, the, But it really is the brain. The brain is it. It is quality of life. Yes. It is quality of life and the, the health of our brain. And so the environment both outside of us, both it with toxicants, and inside of us, with our, our gut microbiome, our interactions with the foods we bring in, um, all of those influence uh, our biochemistry, and we have uh, both indirect interplay from the gut uh, mm-hmm. to, the, to the brain, as well as direct interplay, direct innervation uh, from the gut to the brain, changing central brain regulation. And what an incredible opportunity that is, yeah. you know, that we can see changes in the microbiome um, shift anxiety scores. Mm. Um, do, that we can—that's—that's oh,
0: that's wild. Right. I, I've got some friends doing very good research in this area of managing depression, way better than the antidepressants, with uh, with probiotics and prebiotics. And so, the impact can be so profound that people almost step back and say, "No, that's you know, that's not possible. How can that change anything?" But that two-way communication. Is, it's like a superhighway between the gut and the brain.
1: Absolutely. When we consider that our gut, uh, depending on how we count neurotransmitter creation, you know, makes more neurotransmitters in the day than the brain does. Yes. You know, that's you know, at least it's certainly on par. Um, we, the, the very same chemicals that control the motility of the gut uh, happens to be a chemical named serotonin. It was named for sero means you know the, the, the tube and tonin means you know um, tone or movement and here we go. Serotonin is a gut hormone, hmm. but most individuals today wouldn't uh, wouldn't have the bowel jump to the front of their mind if you hear the term serotonin no. and um, so there by and again isn't it the retrospectoscope? Uh, blazes! It is very fun, it's humorous to me because you know, 15 years ago I was a blazing quack. 10 years ago I was kind of odd. Five years ago, that's kind of interesting. And today, the interest in the United States to learn functional integrative medicine is rabid. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The number of institutions, you know, the Cleveland Clinic has now started a center for functional medicine. Mm-hmm. The uh, medical schools are integrating more of systems biology into their practice. You know the tide has turned, and now it's funny because we get to watch uh, our conventional medical colleagues discover things that we've been talking about for decades. Yes. Uh, and and there's there's a there's a certain amount of joy in all of that. Uh, and if it, if it turns out that this improves patient care and decreases the suffering on the earth. Glory, hallelujah, mm. and it will.
0: So. Well, you, you will remember that it, it wasn't all that long ago that the very term functional meant not real in medical. You know, you have a functional bowel problem, which means here's a psychiatrist friend of mine that I would like you to see. Now the gastroenterologists are back with the microbiome and functional means something very, very different now. So functional has gone from a boo word to a hurrah word very, very swiftly. And I I have a feeling that that's partly the work of Jeff Bland and the Institute of Functional Medicine, that pushing into those areas, it's obviously where the biology of the future and the medicine of the future lies. It's only a question of how we make that transition from the simplistic single cause to the complex health-related and um, health-retrieving methods that functional medicine espouses. I I have great hopes that the microbiome project will actually not end up like genome projects or anything else where it's arcane and people don't know how to use it. That if we get good answers there about the individual's needs, their food needs, how they manage their diet... I have a predilection to think that one of the problems for Caucasians is we no longer have seasons. We no longer have shortages and excesses and sugars at one time of the year and starvation at other times, and our biology, our evolutionary biology, respects and was managed by that. Now a supermarket is spring all year round or summer all year round, and those people who can't handle the sugars get obese and die of heart disease. And those people who can't handle a monoculture of a diet do very very poorly. I'd argue that all of us do very very poorly on monocultures from supermarkets. So I have a, a few uh, um, questions about just opening up this question of uh, this thing. You've got one of your two presentations and workshops is optimizing the brain body neurochemistry, and the other one is optimizing brain body electrophysiology. And I've I've read through a bit of uh, your work, and so I can see. One of them is the soup and one of them is the spark. Can you just tell me, you know, for the practitioners coming there, what's the dividing line between those? What's the difference between neurochemistry and electrophysiology?
1: Well, uh, I'm going to take a step back because I'm going to come from the angle of how do we understand the brain, right? How do we understand the brain at all? And, and so if I'm a, um, you know, if I'm a surgeon, I'm going to look at the brain structure. If I'm a psychologist, I'm going to understand the brain by your story. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm a, if I'm a, a sociologist, I'm going to understand your brain by the terms of your setting. You know, what's your work life environment, etc. Uh, if I'm a geneticist, I'm going to understand it through your strings of your DNA. If I'm a, a pastor, a priest, a shaman, I'm going to understand brain through the terms of spirit. If I'm a psychiatrist, I'm going to understand the brain via your symptoms, and then I'm going to prescribe a drug for them. Okay. If, I'm, uh, if I'm a health coach, I'm going to say, well, it's all about your style of life, and, uh, and that's how I'm going to understand and describe your brain function. And if I'm a, a functional medicine doctor, if I'm a, a nutritionist, a, a systems biology kind of guy, I'm going to think about the soup of the brain. That means I take the brain and cut it with a knife. Everything oozes out to be your soup, right? Your neurotransmitters, your membranes, your um, uh, mitochondrial function, all of that is going to be your soup. And if I'm an electrophysiologist, somebody who understands the electricity of the brain, I'm going to understand the brain based upon its organization of electrical activity, its spark Mm. And so the first point I want to make is that how we understand the brain is deeply linked to our own bias. And, and that bias is the center of brain function, really. Mm. So if we're honest about bias, that each one of us has a bias, and that bias is actually our core strength, that means that's usually the thing we know the most about, then we can start from that bias. So most of the people in the room are going to have a bias of soup. They're going to say, okay, I know a lot about nutrition, and I may use nutritional supplements, I need diet changes, detoxification, and so I'm a soup doctor. Mm-hmm. And, and, but just because we have that bias doesn't mean that um, we have a full understanding of how the brain expresses itself and how we function. It involves all of those things. And so when I take a soup-and-spark-centric approach, I am saying that uh, the the best ways for me to biologically assess what 's going on with this person in front of me is to measure their electricity and see what 's going on in the brain and then measure their biochemistry to see what 's going on in the body mm-hmm. and by looking at those two t- together, we have a far more robust way of approaching the person and the you know th- so when I present people this Viewpoint, the superstring theory of brain health, kind of mm-hmm. a joke. And, um, and I and I write these little terms around and put the brain in the center. And I ask them, well, which one of these approaches— which is it? Soup story, spark, spirit, strings of DNA— which of them is correct? And the patients always look up and say, well, they all are. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right, they all are. And then I usually ask, well, where do you think we should start? And and people have already they've done a lot of work in certain areas of their brain's existence, and um, and so this enables them to recognize that you know what they have done does matter, and and there are other avenues to approach the brain, but the area that I happen to have my expertise and bias in is in this realm of electrophysiology and biochemistry,
0: yeah.
1: and um, and so there. Two, I I actually kind of got into quantitative EEG uh, when I became very unenamored with urinary neurotransmitter testing. I I said, some individuals were saying you should measure urinary neurotransmitters. And I did for a while, and I thought, well, this is interesting. But uh, I could never reconcile the fact that this one biomarker that was present in the urine that's been filtered through a kidney then processed in the kidney probably 50 percent of it came from the kidney that then came from blood that most of that neurotransmitter came from the gut uh then that blood had a mild interface with the whole of the brain and the whole of the brain uh uh yeah. not, not necessarily where the neurotransmitters came from in the brain i couldn't reconcile that this was really assessing the brain at all yes assessing Maybe neurotra- maybe you're assessing neurotransmitters and maybe some biochemistry, but certainly not the brain by testing neurotransmitters. Yeah, it's with the
0: urine. echo of the and, echo of the echo, isn't it? You're kind of getting the end product there that might be related, but you know may also not be related it could be related to a dozen other things
1: i'd say the echo of the echo of the echo yeah. <laughs> and, and so um that's what made me say well are there scientifically valid ways of us understanding this location dependent activity of say serotonin because serotonin um, is not just bathing the brain. There are some very specific neurons that come out of the raphe nuclei in the brainstem, and that's where all the serotonin in the brain really comes from. Mm-hmm. And and it, so that where serotonin expresses itself in the brain is location-dependent. Yeah. Well, with quantitative EEG, we can actually map in a three-dimensional way uh, the interior electrical activity of the brain. And by that, start to... Understand what even what biochemistry may be aberrant, Mm. because because structure and function are always related. And now, do we have the resolution that I would like to have? No. I mean, even with functional MRIs, which even have a higher resolution than quantitative EEG, we don't have perfect resolution. But it does. It starts us down a path. That if we understand the symptoms that person has and that biochemistry they have, gives us a lot more uh, wholesome view of what their uh, true reality is hmm. as regards brain function. And again, there we go to science. The purpose of science is to more accurately Address. Reflect and describe reality. I was
0: I was interested. You said the, there's an FDA approved normal kind of data, a database of normals for qEEG. Is that? I, I was unaware of that.
1: FDA registered.
0: FDA so registered. That
1: means that it is it's not approved. It's a registered database, and that means that it's had a certain level of uh, uh, you know it has been published and the uh, parameters therein have been examined and um, are open for examination.
0: Right. So, so mm-hmm. you can take a QEEG and overlay it to the kind of sample that's there for normals and the derivation of how do you know what you're doing after that? You're looking at the areas that light up relative to the normals and interpreting that are based on the known function of those areas of the brain. Is that the process that goes on?
1: That is correct, in, in part, and so, yes, we're looking for the structure-function relationship. Right. Different speeds of brain waves are indicated with certain disorders, such as uh, very high beta waves, which would be up around you know, anywhere from 20 to 30 hertz in the central part of the brain. The, the cingulate cortex is very often associated with something we call busy brain. Mm. Um, a, uh, you know, it's individuals that have a higher level of anxiety or a high hypervigilance, mm-hmm. um, or an oh, no, excess delta waves uh, may be indicative of a long-track neuronal injury, such as we would see in multiple sclerosis or some of the dementing disorders. Um, so alpha has a lot of interplay with depression. So the waveforms can tell us things. And then certainly the location of where those waveforms are um, inside the brain, um, because of structure function relationships can give us more insight as to which networks are being implicated. And I want to emphasize networks. You know, mm-hmm. the brain is a network of networks and networks overlaying networks. It's not uh, like the Broca's area or Wernicke's area, where there's one spot in the brain which injured would give a predictable response. No, that's not the way a functioning brain works. The functioning brain is by multiple hubs scattered throughout the brain, uh, organized via predictably strong uh, neuronal interrelationships and connections. Uh, That's how a normal brain is organized. So I'm actually getting to do some work in network analysis Hmm. of brains. And I think that's going to give us a much more robust understanding of brain function as opposed to brain disease. We're going to see, already we know that there's overlay within a particular network, uh, like for instance the affective network that will express itself in mood abnormalities. But how does that network interplay with the other overlaying networks and functions? That's what gives the person their unique mood disorder. Is there? So there is some art to this. So just like with functional medicine, there are some basics that can be learned very quickly and implemented uh, very quickly in the clinical setting. And then you also have this wonderful lifetime of learning <laughs> where you can continue to go deeper, right? But know nothing.
0: You need to yeah. read the person and uh, that the person, the individual, the person in front of you is still the most important person in the world at that time. So. Uh, i I have my no problems with the statistical approach to medicine that every individual is just another variant that could have been picked up in a randomised controlled trial. And I've never met an RCT patient in my entire 35 years. <laughs> the the one that never smokes, that takes their pills, that does everything, that that's just not the real person. The people that I see take this information of the testing and the functional testing and they deeply feel that it's right and they change their lives with that knowledge. And some of the time, we as the functional medicine doctors don't have to do much apart from give people the wherewithal to know that they can change, and that they're not crazy, and that's uh, that's I think two mm-hmm. very powerful things. Yes, I'm hoping. Yeah. I'm hoping as well, though. That, I mean, I'm guessing that the um, that the lectures are going to be here's you know the neurochemistry, here's the soup, here's the spark, but I'm guessing that the workshops are more focused on what can the clinician do to reorganise, help, and to give. A better outcome for the patients is that the way that this works with the with the uh, lecture followed by the workshop?
1: absolutely because um, as you noted early on, I am not an academician I am a practicing clinician I' am very proud of my Mayo clinic heritage uh, in that it was a Mayo clinic is very much a clinic it's not a, it's not foremost an academic center right and the um, the and, and it's, it's very evident in, in seeing um, that area of emphasis there. But um, So, yes, the, the purpose of, for attendees is to walk away so that on a Monday morning their practice may be transformed. Mm. They may have new tools to better care for people. And that they would also have a better context by which to approach patients yeah. and think, hmm, what is next? How can I... Look at this situation differently. Hmm. So, and it's really all of the best learning in medicine happens via our patients. Yeah. And so, I'm going to be presenting several case studies that will help anchor the, the information that we've gone through during the didactic sessions. That's pretty uh, And then also having having time for questions. You know, this is a uh, interactive time, and I love that period. Of time in between sessions, where I get to interact with uh participants, and uh, i always I always feel like it 's a shame that i 'm the one standing up there because I learn so much from <laughs> the people that are present in these in these uh uh, gathering.
0: It is the joy of taking your message out. You get to meet the clinicians who have a problem to be solved. You help them in the problem solving, but you get to hear the problems that they need to have solved. And it, it is, uh, I mean, the last two symposia have been exactly this way that the two-way learning. However, this time with Mark Houston involved and the focus really on, you know, let's go deeply into these principles. I suspect that the focus now is going to lead to really significant, you know, practical outcomes. The practical magic of functional medicine is if you can take it on Monday and ask a different question like, do you get electric shocks? And it changes the trajectory of that person and the advice you're going to give them. Then that's, you know, that's the magic of putting the four of you together and going deep into the workshop. So... I am really, really looking forward to it. I get that pleasure of being able to be the critic and watch it and hear it and go, oh, yeah, that's what I missed for the last decade of my life. Why didn't someone say that earlier?
1: But, <laughs> You'll notice when you meet me, I have a rather flat forehead. And that's from many, you know, a couple of decades now of getting to hear something and and I go and oh! Immediately, I <laughs> slam my, my open palm into the top of my head. It's been shaped like that over the course of many years.
0: Well, I, I hope oh, to help. I, I hope that. to help flatten it a little bit further over the uh, over the next week's symposium. <laughs> David, it has been absolutely delightful to talk to you. I'm busting to meet you uh, next week when you arrive. I all I can think is. Attacking the brain is, you know, it's the mother load. It's the place where we all want to understand what is going on. That's the input and the output for the person. And as you say, you know, the heart is just a brain support system, although... Not every male thinks that. There was a story long ago from the sexologist saying that the brain is simply a penis support system for procreation. (laughs) And I think that's the kind of biological idea that everything is around procreation and the brain is only there to tell us of the threats to procreation and to keep us out of trouble and to find the right mate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we'll have yeah, a lot of fun. You know,
1: you're, you're, causing, you're causing me to have to rethink my paradigm.
0: Yeah, uh, that's right. Oh, yeah. That, there that's we go right. again. It all, it uh, all relates uh, to mating. Palm to forehead. Mating, eating fighting, and fighting uh, and winning. But I, look, I'm busting for it because new tools to give us better understanding and simple interventions, the idea of biofeedback, the idea of those kind of approaches is stuff that we as functional medicine, we kind of intuitively know we don't have easy access to tools. And as those tools develop, and you do this kind of work, delivering that information, here's what you can do to understand, here's how you work with the person, and here's practical magic that can make a difference to that trajectory. That's the magic of the Bioceutical symposium. And I think this one's going to be a beauty. I'm, I'm really looking forward to meeting you all.
1: And I'm you. So thank you for your time.
0: Thank you very much, David Hassey at uh, next week's Bioceutical Symposium. This is Mark Donohue for FX Medicine, and I will see you all at the symposium.